This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. Well, it's a pleasure to be here on Earth uh, Earth Day. And uh, uh, this came about about a year ago. Uh, I was uh, doing research for a paper that I just took two years, but it finally got through the reviewers. Uh, but I was doing research on a paper on mindfulness, uh, more oriented towards looking at mindfulness in the uh, corporate world. But as I uh, dived into that, I came across the book by Analio. I'm sure many of you know of his book, Bhikkhu Analio. And uh, that's when I discovered that Shiloh was teaching a class on the uh, Pali Canon and uh, Samyata Nikaya. So we started to talk, and then she said, well, maybe there's a series here. So that's how that came about, about a year ago. So um, so I'd like to start out by uh, just kind of giving you a context for some of the issues that I'd like to open up and uh, explore. Uh, First of all, we all seem to be, uh, how many people have seen the cover of the Time magazine that came out uh, a few months ago? The cover of the Time magazine, so we're in a mindful revolution, right? And uh, we have celebrities like Oprah Winfrey and Goldie Hawn and uh, Adriana Huffington uh, that are endorsing <coughs> the mindfulness movement. We have mindfulness coaches that are rubbing shoulders with the rich and famous at Davos, uh, World Economic Forum. Uh, it's estimated now that, according to Mindful Magazine, I saw somewhere uh, a few months ago, it's a $4 billion industry already. The yoga industry is at $27 billion. Uh, it's hard to believe, but... Uh, we have corporate executives that sit on the boards of Goldman Sachs and ExxonMobil who are preaching the benefits of mindfulness. And, of course, the glossy mass-marketed uh, magazine Mindful is, I think, a testament to how popular mindfulness is. So isn't this a good thing? That Probably. Uh, it depends on what we mean by mindfulness. And I think that's kind of what we're trying to explore here. Um, and in, in, many, in my personal opinion, I think it's being oversold uh, in some respects. Um, and we're all struggling, I think, here to figure out what is uh, modern Buddhism or what is Buddhist modernism? What is Buddhism in the West? It took 500 years uh, for Buddhism in China to reach its golden age. So we're, even though Buddhism stepped foot in American soil in 1893 at the World Parliament of Religion, we really are not <coughs> engaged in practice until probably, what, the 60s, right? Uh, the early 60s, if that. So <coughs> we're, what, 50 years maybe into the process of experimentation and uh, translation and transformation to figure out, you know, how do we, uh, how do we take a 25-year, 2,600-year-old tradition and integrate it within the, discor the discourses of modernity that we're in, or postmodernity, for that matter. Um, one of the things I, I came across, I'm not a theologian or anything like that, but... This idea of uh, apologetics, I guess, was a, uh, a kind of a, a way in, in, in Christianity that apologetics was a way to make things more palatable to a populace that may not be familiar with a particular religious concept. And, and so it was a way to make a doctrine more... Uh, understandable, perhaps more acceptable, uh, within that host culture. And I think we see some of that happening right now. Um, and it's inevitable that Buddhism does have to adapt. It does have to adapt to modernity. On the other hand, Buddhism was a prophetic force 
for the transformation of these societies through its history. And so I think that it's still an open question whether Buddhism is Buddhism is the West changing Buddhism more than the Buddhism more than Buddhism is changing the West. And that to me is still the jury is out on that, and I don't think we'll know in our lifetime yet. But certainly, um, we have to work within the pre-existing sort of uh, modern mind that uh, that we're in. And so, I think what I'm trying to to explore tonight is is that mindfulness means different things in different times and different contexts. And that its meaning can change, its function can change. So by making uh, mindfulness through kind of a Buddhist apologetics uh, more accessible and widely available, uh, we also may be making some compromises as well. Maybe those compromises are necessary. But on the other hand, maybe we're not aware of what the longer term impact may be of those compromises. So certainly, uh, modern Buddhism or Buddhist modernism started before it even came to the West. It, I'm sure many of you uh, know some of the history out of Burma, uh, Ceylon or Sri Lanka, Japan for that matter, Thailand. Uh, in terms of the Theravada and Vipassana uh, revival and reform movements that were happening, uh, in some respects, uh, as a way to to preserve Buddhism from the uh, influx of British colonial, colonial, British uh, colonialism and Christian missionaries. So there was a kind of a, a reshaping, and, and that's where meditation became kind of almost a lay, well, it became a very popular lay movement in Burma uh, 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 through like popularizers like Lady, uh, Lady Sayadaw, Mahasi Sayadaw. Uh, but what we see in that particular turn is that Buddhism began to already try to market itself to the West as being compatible with the West. So it became a science of mind. Buddhism was compatible with science. Those were intentional uh, shifts in discourse in a way as a survival mechanism to preserve the uh, integrity of Buddhism in Southeast Asia. Um, so one of the most popular uh, secular associations of meditation or mindfulness is that it reduces stress or it's seen as a stress reduction uh, approach Uh, but I don't I'm not so sure if the Buddha was interested necessarily in stress reduction Uh, Certainly that's a side effect, but there are some people that that sort of riff off on that, like uh, Donald Lopez, who says that, uh, no, uh, Buddha was about a stress induction, not stress reduction. <laughs> it's like you have to meditate as if your hair was on fire. So that's, that's kind of stressful imagery. <laughs> and he also, also used a lot of words like strive, you know, strive on and diligently. And, um, but we we have now kind of a uh, a refashioning of mindfulness as uh, almost well I'll I'll unpack that more but it's definitely uh, taken on a therapeutic uh, flavor and that's not to be uh, that's not unexpected as I said we have to adapt to the discourses that are most prominent in the West so when we saw Buddhism move into China for example. Now, China was a very sophisticated, literate culture with an aristocratic, uh, learned uh, uh, society. We had the indigenous uh, religion of Taoism, and we also had the uh, Confucian uh, tradition going on. So they had to make sense of this uh, weird Indian uh, Buddhism that was making its way and uh, try to make sense of it from within their own uh, indigenous uh, religious traditions. And it's interesting that uh, Robert Buswell, who is an interesting Korean scholar of Korean Buddhism, said that when the uh, Chinese first were w- interacting with the translators, 
to make sense out of the word mindfulness, <coughs> of course, sati would be the Pali. Uh, they said, oh, so that means that we should pay attention to our chief gods. We need to pay attention to the chief gods. And of course, that was more of a Taoist uh, understanding of it. Now, I think we're in the same phase of coming to terms, or you could say matching terms, trying to make sense of the meaning of these terms within our culture. Um, and so one of the legacies of this Theravada uh, reform movement, of course, was that uh, mindfulness was sort of uh, elevated and kind of proselytized as the heart of Buddhism. That's a new development. That's really quite a new development if you look at it historically. Um, we also have now, of course, with the great uh, capacity of Western science and all the uh, contemplative neuroscience research and clinical research that's happening now, in terms of uh, doing research on meditation and mindfulness, we have this uh, sort of scientific veneer now that is coloring uh, the notions of what mindfulness is. There's also some assumptions, I think, that uh, need to be challenged in the idea. Uh, I don't think we could do that tonight in a short amount of time. But um, that the Dharma is universal. I... I tend to challenge that notion, and you may you may push back on, on that a bit, but I think the Dharma is is uh, something that is uh, reinvented as it moves through time and as it moves through space. Now, certainly there are essential teachings that are common through all the traditions of Buddhism, but their expression and their way of... Uh, uh, actualizing these are really vastly different from school to school and even between schools or within schools. There have been fierce debates and criticisms uh, among Buddhist schools. And I think that's what has made Buddhism such a uh, vital uh, and living tradition is that it's not, still, it's not still in a museum somewhere. It's actually kept alive through these vigorous sort of critical inquiries. Now, that may seem uh, breaking the norm because oftentimes we think, uh, oh, no, we shouldn't, we shouldn't question other uh, traditions or we shouldn't question one person's perspective. Uh, it's sort of almost kind of a play nice sort of uh, kind of uh, norm that I think we have in the West. Um, so if we go back to uh, some of the early uh, entrances of, of Buddhism and how it be, began to be understood, we could go back to like uh, the first book by D.T. Suzuki in 1939, uh, which Carl Jung wrote a foreword to, which was interesting. And uh, then we have... In the early 1960s, we have people like uh, Suzuki and Eric Fromm and others that were, these were psychoanalysts that were extremely interested in Zen at the time, especially Eric Fromm. And so that was kind of the beginning of the, the intersection, intersection with, with psychology and psychoanalysis. And then uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's book in 1975, The Miracle of Mindfulness, uh, appeared in the title. Um, so we're at a point, I think, now, because of the popularity of mindfulness, that um, the term itself is lacking coherence. Uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi made, made a remark that it's so vague that you can pretty much read whatever you want into it now. Uh, and um, uh, Carl Rogers, I don't, I'm sure some of you are familiar with Carl Rogers if you're a therapist, uh, he uh, started what was called person-centered therapy, if you recall that. And then became so popular, everybody started calling what they were doing person-centered this, person that, person this. You know, So it's, it's a similar, if you have a person, you could be person-centered. If you have a mind, you could be mindful. 
It's, it's almost like it's similar in, in, in many respects. So, um, as I mentioned it, mindfulness has been kind of, as it's become secularized, and, and because of our, we don't have Confucianism, we don't have Taoism. What we have in the West is psychotherapy. <clears throat> and so that has become one of the, the main hosts uh, for mindfulness. And how is that changing? How is that changing the function or the meaning of it? Well, in one way, it's being seen as a treatment. So mindfulness is seen as a treatment. Whereas if you look more traditionally, mindfulness is a process of investigation. And so you could look at these as kind of maybe as tensions that we're wrestling with. Mindfulness itself, uh, the, the term, I'm, I'm sure a lot of you know the origins of this, was T.W. Rice David, who was one of the British uh, Buddhist scholars in the 19th century. When he was translating, he was trying to figure out, oh, what, what would be a good English word for this? And he came up with mindfulness. And it actually came out of a Christian Anglican prayer and that prayer was to be ever mindful of the needs of others. That's where it triggered his memory of that. But it's used as an adjective here in this, in this, uh, in this context, not as a noun. So I don't want to go into, uh, I mean, Shyla is the expert on the whole uh, interpretation of, of through the suttas and all that. So I don't really want to venture into that territory. Uh, but certainly... Uh, memory applied to purposeful activity uh, is one way of vaguely uh, translating it. Um, another aspect of mindfulness is its re- recollective function. Its re- recollective function. So here's a quote from one of the uh, suttas. Here a disciple is mindful. He is equipped with the keenest mindfulness and awareness he recollects well and keeps in mind what has been said and done in the past. So that is very distinctly uh, opening up the notion that mindfulness is not just about the present moment. It also has this memory or keeping in mind, calling to mind, recollecting. Okay, But it seems that now the therapeutic kind of definition of mindfulness that is being sort of obscured to some extent. And I'll, I'll try to see if I can uh, amplify that. Um, the other thing, if we look at this tension between uh, mindfulness as a treatment and mindfulness uh, as investigation, we can see that originally uh, mindfulness was concerned with the fundamentals. It was concerned not just with symptoms, but it was a means to learning. It was not a treatment, but you could more as an educational framework. More as an educational framework. Uh, And so another characterization of mindfulness as a therapeutic modality would be to call it something like problem-solving mindfulness. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if it's a treatment, uh, we're treating, we're trying to treat problematic mental patterns or emotional patterns of some kind. In uh, contrast, that with let's say spiritual mindfulness as investigation, which is more, much more broader in scope, and it's about the existential issues of life and death. It's about ethics. It's about our whole orientation to the whole of life, not just a focus on treating depression, not just the focus on eating disorders, not just the focus on getting better focus so you can climb the corporate ladder. This is a whole different sort of frame. And so the goals, I think, in treatment or problem-solving mindfulness are more modest, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, And they're really aimed to ameliorate you know, certain unspecific 
states of mind, trying to ameliorate, 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 I can't pronounce that, therapeutic or beneficial. Um, So we come back to this idea of stress reduction. And to me, I remember progressive relaxation in the 1980s. Uh, Herbert Benson, people like that, uh, through relaxation. But the primary claim is that um, through focusing on the present moment, we can actually be more mindful and then in, in, through that be more relaxed. And I think that's actually been proven scientifically to be true. I think there's plenty of efficacy studies that would say, yes, that, that is true. So we're not, I'm not really uh, disputing that. Uh, but I think it's important to be more cautious around the conclusions that we draw from these studies. In fact, uh, there was a recent study uh, by the Journal of American Medical Association, the Journal of American Medical Association, Internal Medicine, just recently out of John Hopkins, that looked at over 18,000 citations. And what they did is they narrowed it down. It was a meta-analytic study and they narrowed it down to 47 studies that were really seriously random uh, controlled trials uh, with active control groups. And these are very hard to do. These are extremely hard to do. But they found 47 of them, and there were 35, over 3,500 people. And basically they said, really, there wasn't any significant difference for people that were doing mindfulness versus doing progressive relaxation, group therapy, or exercise. So, you know, a lot of the science is kind of hyped as well. And I think we need to be cautious of that. Um, So, is mindfulness overrated? Um, I'm going to be sort of the devil's advocate here. Is that two-thirds of our life is spent, uh, well, one-third. Is it one-third? Yeah, one-third, roughly. It depends how well you sleep. But (laughs) one-third of our life is spent not being mindful. It's being unconscious. And that's very, very healing. It has a very, uh, very necessary for our health, mental health, physical health. And then we have the the two-thirds. And so, you know, I'm wondering, what about play? Are we supposed to be mindful of every little move we make? Or can we have a little fun? Do we have to always be mindful? Uh, what about fantasy? What about reverie? In fact, there's other scientists now that are studying what they call mind wandering and finding the benefits of mind wandering in terms of <coughs> the creative process. You've, you've heard about creative people in terms of their ability to uh, actually go into their deep unconscious in different ways through fantasy or dreams or taking a nap or whatever it may be. Now, I'm not trying to say one is pitted against the other. There's a time and place for, for all of these. Uh, some people say, okay, mindfulness is about awareness. and it, Awareness and wariness have similar roots, to be wary of something. And I think to be wary is something evolutionary uh, it's kind of an evolutionary survival mechanism to be able to be mindful or aware of threats and dangers. And so a lot of times people say, okay, I'm going to be really mindful and watch everything. And, but simply being aware or sharp, even sharply aware uh, really doesn't necessarily have any sort of ethical or moral dimension to it. And this is kind of an issue that's uh, actually the inquiring mind uh, piece there is on war and peace. And it's about mindfulness in the military. There's some articles in there. So you could be extremely aware and mindful and and pull an M16. So I don't think we're talking about that kind of mindfulness and what we're trying to do. Um, So we're getting into um, the idea of therapeutic mindfulness or problem-solving mindfulness. And one of, one of the things I think that we have to take a look at is it doesn't question the nature of the self. 
doesn't really question the nature of a self. Uh, and if I'm in a problem-solving mindfulness mode, I already have pre-established aims of what I'm trying to do as a self. I've already made decisions. I want to get rid of some kind of distressing emotion or I want to kick smoking, I want to quit smoking. I've already kind of, in my own mind, I have a goal in mind. The self has already decided that. And so that's fine. But what about the larger questions of how to live? What is a good life? You know, that's, that's a different sort of way of looking at uh, mindfulness in a broader context. Um, so I'd like to shift to talk about this idea of this popular definition that's become kind of the stand-in for mindfulness is the idea that mindfulness is paying attention in a particular way to the present moment, non-judgmentally. That's a very popular secular definition now. And um, uh, this is something I'm working on. And, and so it's a work in progress. But I call it the myth of the present moment. Uh, now, this may sound her- heretical to you, uh, like blasphemy for me to question that. But I'm sure a lot of you remember Be Here Now from Ram Das, and, and then we have Eckhart Tolle, uh, The Power of Now. There's a book out called The Now Effect or something like that. Uh, but the, the idea is that it's only the present moment that's real. And so you have to try to live completely in the present moment. Well, I would say that's a view. That's a philosophical view. Uh, I, I could try to deconstruct that, but I don't have time to do that. But, um, but it's all about uh, how can we be fully embodied in the present moment? Um, David Brazier, a uh, very interesting Buddhist teacher, he calls this here and nowism. It also becomes almost like an ism. <laughs> here and nowism. Uh, in a way, you could say, yeah, okay, the present moment is the only moment, but that's like trivially, trivially true. I mean, it's it, what does that say? I mean, can anyone tell me where the pro- present moment is located right now? <laughs> it takes time to be in the present moment. So by the time you do it, it's already passed. So um, it's an important skill, uh, and I, I'm not saying that it's not beneficial to learn how to uh, let go of all the mental ruminations and worries and fears and regrets about the past and the future. Sure, there's no one's going to say that, that that's not beneficial. Uh, but I think this is also oversold, uh, this idea of, of trying to beat it in the present moment. Because <clears throat> I think, I don't always like to say, well, I think the Buddha, you know, I don't know what the Buddha actually thought, but a lot of people like to attribute what the Buddha probably thought or what the Buddha thought. There's even a book by that title, right? What the Buddha Thought or something. Or What the Buddha Taught. Um, but what about the consequentiality of one's actions? That requires looking forward and looking back, reflecting on what you did before so you don't repeat a mistake. So, yeah, attention to the present moment has a calming effect, and that's good. I think we are in a frenzied, western, crazy society that we have to figure out ways to do that. Uh, but mindfulness has a much wider scope, much wider context than just trying to be in the present moment. Um, so another discourse of modernity that the West is, uh, is using to make sense of mindfulness is the American transcendentalism and romanticism. <coughs> And 
so a lot of times what happens then is that we see mindfulness as a way of, of uh, almost a form of sensory enhancement. In other words, <laughs> what I mean by that is that, oh, mindfulness means now I'm just going to enjoy the sunset. Mindfulness means, okay, I'm going to watch every move I make as I wash the dishes and look at the bubbles and appreciate. You know, it's a sense of a enhancing appreciation. Now, I don't mean to say that that's negative, but um, we're turning towards the senses. We're turning towards the aggregates in this approach. Um, it's like it's the idea of you know stop and smell the roses, right? Um, and there is a certain freshness to having that sort of mindfulness. Certainly, the Zen poetry, I mean, uh, is all about that sense of immediacy and freshness. So there are, you know, uh, threads of uh, truth to this idea of, of trying to be in the present moment. Uh, but when that becomes the be-all and end-all, then we begin to see it as a standalone, single practice that supposedly covers the whole dharma. And I think that's where we need to say, wait a minute, let's slow down here. Let's take a look at that. Um, so this approach that is, is sort of a re-enchantment of experience because we're, we are so deadened by the routine of industrialized society. We're so deadened by the the frenzy pace of time that, yeah, you know, we do need to get back into our bodies. We do need to feel a sense of aliveness. And that's one way that mindfulness now in the secular modern translation is, is starting to dominate the way that we think of it. But as I said in the beginning, that is sort of more of mindfulness as treatment or problem-solving mindfulness. Uh, so this idea of uh, heightening one's sensuality, heightening one's sens- sensory appreciation uh, it is ironic because if we look in contrast that it's sort of orthogonal to the whole approach of renunciation in, in the more traditional <laughs> Buddhist uh, well, more monastic sort of training is about renunciation. Now, I think in the modern world, we're never going to go in that direction. We are in a world-affirming uh, stance of modernity. We're in a world-affirming, not in a world-negating, world-denying stance. And so um, I think we're struggling with how do we do that in a way that does not necessarily throw out some of the more transformative aspects of the tradition. So, um, I'll move along here. The next aspect, and I'm running out of time, so I'll speed it up, um, is I think another basic misunderstanding that's coming out of this is that Buddhist training is sort of moving away from being seen as a practice, uh, a social practice of bringing compassion to the world. And it's kind of moving towards almost this therapeutic uh, mode of personal or individual uh, salvation. So it's becoming almost like a privatized spirituality. And... uh, Is that the noble path? Is that really what the noble path is? I mean, if we are going to figure out a way, a modern way to be a renunciant without being a monastic, how do we do that? Um, Well, what do we renounce? Well, isn't it ignorance, greed, and ill will? We could still do that without taking on a robe. But I think that the trick here is that some people want their cake and eat it too. And what I mean by that is that they want their spiritual disease ameliorated, but without attending to the larger social causes of suffering in the world. 
So if we see mindfulness as this sort of free-floating practice, and if we see mindfulness as privileging of the present moment, um, I think we could lose some of the more uh, liberating aspects uh, that include the liberation of all sentient beings, not just me. And I think that's what is at stake here in many ways. So this do-it-yourself privatized spirituality, you know, it's kind of neat because it's completely accommodated to Western uh, capitalism, Western consumerism, crass instrumentalism. So we could be mindful without having to change our behavior. You know, I want my peace. The rest of you, you know, go get your own. So it's a great consumer appeal to mindfulness when it's promised to provide all these worldly benefits to the self. Personal happiness, well-being, resilience, focus, career success. That's an easy sell. But struggling, that's not very easy. Striving, not very easy. Sacrifice, not very easy. And so I wish I had a little more time, but I want to leave 10 minutes to uh, open up for questions. But I could, I have a lot more. But So should we open it up for questions? Yes. Um, so a lot of very, very interesting um, provocative points. Thank you. Um, and I agree with a lot of them. And um, I would, one of the things that pops up, like when you say uh, the Dharma is not universal, what, as you describe all these things, what I see is a whole bunch of us dip in a whole bunch of different colors of school age talking about. And that's our failure that we don't achieve a universality in our conversation about it. To me, that doesn't mean that there isn't some useful food that support that we're just not necessarily good at, at naming well. Okay? And uh, I think similarly with mindfulness, if you have mindfulness and you don't um, also kind of fail with compassion and wisdom, then it's not really mindful in my view. It's, it's, you know, I mean, that's what's so beautiful about Buddhism is it's web way you can't kind of get away with one, using one little point and find out the other thing. Well, that's, a, that's right. And I think that um, the attempt to extract bits and pieces in this decontextualization. Right. Uh, but you see, by saying that Dharma is universal, then we can ignore all of the systemic integrative framework that is there. Well, it makes it portable by saying, oh, we could teach the essence of the Dharma by extracting just mindfulness. Because it's universal, so we can extract it. And I'm saying exactly that. I think I'm agreeing. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. Yeah, so yeah, I'm on the same wavelength for sure. Yes. I'm curious about um, your use of mindfulness in the industry. Um, and are you using the old traditional form of mindfulness or are you using new? <laughs> I'm not using it. <laughs> I'm observing it and seeing what other people are using it for. Um, so I'm not personally using it, but I know a, a lot of people are. And uh, I, I have reservations about what I see. Now, I don't want to really get into that. I have a whole paper on that. You could, I could uh, <laughs> give you a reference to it. But, um, but I think there's room to do things that could not be necessarily a uh, dilution or a denaturing. I think there might be ways of doing that. On the other hand, I don't have a lot of faith in capitalism anymore. I'll be honest with you. I think it's broke. So I think that, you know, 
I, my training is in organization development. And we tried working in companies for many years trying to transform the whole approach to management, the whole approach to uh, sharing power and, and authority and humanizing the organization. And we did this in t- intentionally with a systemic approach. And it continuously was either beaten down by the corporate headquarters or it simply failed. And so I, I'm a real skeptic when it comes to thinking that mindfulness is a Trojan horse that if you, if you bring it into a company and miraculously everyone is going to stop making uh, GMO at Monsanto uh, or whatever it may be, or all the, the Marines are going to lay down their arms. Uh, I don't see that. I think that, and this gets into, because the uh, forces of, of <coughs> greed and ill will are institutionalized. They're institutionalized. They're, they're, they're much larger in scope now. Yes? It seems like the primary difference there is trying to apply something to a greater organism that isn't necessarily asking for it versus individuals coming to it saying, I'm looking for something, I'm not finding it, and I'm trying this. I think that's more honest, and I think that's more realistic. Uh, Yeah. Uh, I see a hand in the back. Yeah. Um, so I really appreciate this talk. Um, this is an issue that I'm struggling with right now, and I want to let you know who I am, and I think that this is a really important problem. I am the lead physician of the medical center at Cisco System. At where? At Cisco. It's so built in the Medical Center five years ago to take care of employees, so we are a full service I am not a physical employee because of my, I work with different companies also in um, But our primary care center was built on this whole mind-body spirit. And we're highly integrated. We have acupuncturists, we have therapists, chiropractors, um, EAP counselors, and so that's the um, And um, not just the idea of the mind-body spirit, but our EAP counselor was very well trained in meditation and he has to draw a lot of salon on that plane, from a non-Buddhist perspective. Um, and we use it with our patients because our patients are very typical Silicon Valley workers. They are highly stressed out. They are quite frankly abused at what they do. Um, a lot of our patients are international and they're on visas. And for them to keep their visas at it, and we have the opportunity to work in this country as opposed to countries um, and they are very lucky to go up here and send them to the families. They are highly stressed because they have that whole cultural stress on them. Um, they work, you know, ridiculous hours because this is international. They will take morning calls at 7 a.m. and night calls at 9 p.m. They barely sleep. They're not taking care of themselves. They're young. Our average age patient is 40, and they already have all these health conditions. We utilize mindfulness in many ways. Um, one, to help with health issues so from the treatment perspective, like blood pressure, anxiety, insomnia, um, and we try to teach them meditation from that perspective. But I, as the sort of lead, um, with my group and my staff, teach it from a slightly different perspective, one that's more, I would say, countercultural to what you said about capitalism which is the idea that what we're giving them back is their humanity. This mindfulness allows them to focus back on themselves and what's important to them, not in a selfish way, but in a way where they're not objects and they're not just workers in building business industries. And so I don't, I, it's, a, it's an interesting question because we, you know, Cisco is an interesting place because on the one hand, they are just negative corporations. On the other hand, there are people in Cisco who felt that this center is important enough to build, to fund, um, and to keep going, and who do support what we do. 
sometimes I feel some people support it because they like the idea of mindfulness for productivity. Um, right? And that's what we're doing it. But from my perspective as a healer, I don't really care why. Because I like, I mean, it's a fabulous way to bring back people's humanity and stuff to help them stop and think about themselves and the fact that they don't get to work all these hours and it's important to take time for yourself and take time for family build your relationships. So to this woman's point about the compassion part and so the other Buddhist concepts, that's what we try to bring in. And, um, you know, where is it going? I don't know, but I know from my perspective, it is not a productivity point of view. It's more taking back people as people. So that's not a question. It's just... <laughs> Maybe one or two more questions. We're getting close. I, uh, you were first, yes. Uh, again, I don't know if a question. I uh, taught for probably about 14 years for Kaiser in a mindfulness-based stress reduction. So I have a different take in, um, in teaching mindfulness in that um, with John Kabat-Zinn's uh, teachings, it's kind of like Rumi's poet about uh, smuggling donkeys and the, uh, is that it may look that way, but when you sit in a room of people who have come because they're suffering, and you see the interaction and the awareness that grows and the reconnection with their heart and compassion for each other, each one of them may have come with a symptom and you may be calling it problem solving. And that might be from an exterior point of view, but in that sacred space of that room, that's not what it is. It's what she said. It's it's the it's rediscovering your humanity and connecting with the compassionate of you who connects with all the other people in that room. Mm-hmm. And it is the practice in itself that I mean the the practice itself doesn't whatever you intellectually want to hang on it. Um, the fact that you practice changes you. So whatever you want to call it, um, if you're teaching it from that compassionate point of view and not going after increasing output, <laughs> but if it, the teacher is compassionate and that's what you got, it does its own work. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, why the Dalai Lama so much um, supports things like the Mind Life Institute that says, you can study it scientifically, you can, but it stands on its own. Mm-hmm. And people come to those classes not at all from a spiritual point of view, right. at point one. But where they end up is completely different because they open to a part of themselves that they haven't before. And that's not a problem solved, that's a door opened. So it's, it's just, uh, you're just beginning something. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, I, I I went through an eight week eight week MBSR too, just to see how how it was as a first person experience. And uh, no, I, I absolutely agree with you on that. I don't think we're disputing or trying to denigrate at all the therapeutic aspects uh, of how mindfulness is is being used. But I think that that's a diff- it's a different question though to see um, as the West tries to make sense of these Buddhist practices. How do we still retain the more deeper transformative aspects of the path? Uh, Because I think there's still a danger, not a danger, but a risk, perhaps, uh, that this may reach kind of a foreclosure or a closure around the therapeutic side of mindfulness. I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not trying to say that the, that the therapeutic side of mindfulness is not of benefit. It's great benefit. Yes? A few more. One of the ways that uh, you do what you suggested is you, you support the <coughs> you, you 
who participate who make sure that groups like this are still here because once you graduate from an MBSR, right. if you want to, if, you, if that door was open, there's no place else to go. Yeah. Well, there's some alum, there's some alumni group things, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think. Right. Yeah. No, I've heard that before that, you know, what do you do after eight weeks, right? So it's not a necessarily a, uh, a path. It is a treatment. Uh, so, uh, yeah, in the back. Um, I'm new. This is my first time here. I just came from New York City three months ago. I worked at Wall Street for 20 years. Wow, you're young. Um, <laughs> you know, it's been been an interesting, confusing sort of dialogue tonight because you know, I've lived this crazy life for 20 years and you know, sort of like what the young lady was saying, there is something else and I spoke to someone today who said I sounded nothing, they haven't heard me sound this way in years and you know, I'm perplexed by the idea of, you know, what one gets out of this, and I once asked this question recently about like, what do you get out of it, or what were you looking to get out of it? And when I think of you, you know, back in the 80s, what, you know, it's a hard question to ask, but what were you looking to do? And, and it wasn't as popular back then, but what was it that drove um, drove you to it? Me? And more importantly, um, what, you know, you still practice, but that's not, your day job, you know, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? like I'm trying to connect the two because it's it seems almost not practical in this day and age to have like full immersion, but to have some some immersion seems to be a really impactful event if that makes any sense whatsoever. <laughs> what was your question? Okay. <laughs> I, uh, Some people need to. Yeah, I don't want to hold people here. Uh, I don't know what the norm is. You want to maybe have some conversations with people that want to stay. I don't. Sure, sure. So we'll officially close. Okay. Well, thank you all, and I will be here to, for the next uh, for the whole series. So I appreciate this. Thank you so much. Thank you. So thank much. you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.